0: stand by dark masks, gather round your TV set, put on your masks, and watch. All witches, all skeletons, all jack-o'-lanterns. The third gather commercial, it's still on, please. Take off the third outcome. channel, the third channel, is still running, stop it, please, for God's sake, please stop it, there's no more time. You've got to, s- please, stop it, stop it now, turn it off, turn it off, stop it, 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 stop it!
1: It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy it's the Popcorn
0: Digest Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't I'm your host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Irish warlock, Andrew Raphael I'm Irish Honest and for this week's episode we're donning our masks to prepare ourselves for a face melting good time with Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. But is this Halloween film a shapeless mess? Find out after the trailer. You don't really know much
1: about Halloween. Halloween. The barriers will be down between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red.
0: Halloween, the children. You happen to know anything about this, Cochrane?
1: All I can tell you, mister, is watch out. Season He's watching you, friend, Shoot. I guarantee you that. Trick or treat, trick or treat. Hey, Mr. Cochrane, just what is the final process? Fellas, I was just kidding! You. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment.
0: Hey! Ah! Where are they taking her? They're taking her to the factory.
1: I want a mask! Can I have a mask? Uh, Just what I had in mind for you, little buddy. Why, Congress? Why? Do I need a reason?
0: I've got nothing here to indicate
1: there was ever a body at all.
0: Operator, this is an emergency. I do love a good joke, and this is the best ever. A joke on the children. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. With Michael Myers too busy filming Wayne's World, Season of the Witch provides a whole new story to the Halloween series. Tom Atkins stars as a man twice the age of his love interest who finds himself at the centre of a bonkers conspiracy in which an ancient warlock plans to manipulate the mystical powers of Stonehenge to create homicidal Halloween masks for the children of the world. Or as John Carpenter calls it, just a normal Saturday. <laughs> and that is without me even mentioning the murder-suicide bots, the <laughs> robots in this film. So, so, Andy, have you seen Halloween 3 season of The
1: Witch? before this episode not in full i've always seen it in bits and pieces it's it's probably the only halloween film that i haven't actually seen in full outside of the uh, rob zombie remakes yeah we did that stint the uh, about a year ago where we uh, watched some of the later sequels but we we missed this one out because we were concentrating on the uh, on the michael myers films so I've seen this in in little bits. I've seen some of the robot action and uh, I've known about it for a long time. Yeah. So I had a a basic gist of what it was about, but I'd never seen the whole thing completely in context. So uh, that, that was interesting to watch it in full.
0: I will say that this is a film for me that I actually saw as a kid. It was on about one o'clock in the morning on some Halloween night. I think that was probably the best way in which you could possibly watch this film. But even then, I was still aware of its legacy as being that weird Halloween film that doesn't have Michael Myers in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when we grew up, because Halloween H2O came back and mm-hmm. the, the, the series enjoyed something of a revival while we were in our teenage years, as did the slasher genre in general, thanks to Scream. Yeah. I think Halloween and Michael Myers itself was a very prominent series in my childhood and upbringing, but... Uh, Yeah, this was always regarded as the oddity. Yeah. I will say that there is one scene in this film, and everybody knows what scene that is, that stuck with me for years. And that left quite an impression. But I've actually been looking forward to cover this on the podcast as well because it is a very strange
1: film and I felt it even back then. I always remember Halloween 3 as a kid, yeah, as that one that didn't have Michael Myers in it and also the poster because it looks so much different to all the other Halloween posters as well. So Yeah, very much so. And that image of the the silhouetted kids on the red skyline, mm-hmm. I always remember that from being sort of very young. So yeah, it always stuck out, but maybe not in the right way. Yeah, so just before we get into what we really
0: think about Halloween 3, before we give the game away on that front, I think it's time for us to begin to discuss how this film came to be, really, and what the history of the Halloween series is. I'm really glad that we did that marathon that we uh, went through last year, in fact, because there's a whole bunch of Halloween films that I hadn't seen since then. Everything from Halloween 3 up to H2O was just a blank for me. And then I hadn't seen Halloween Resurrection as well, <laughs> <laughs> so it was good to go through that, and I got a sense of like a better sense of the history of the series, yeah. and also where uh, it's it's kind of downfall, and it's weird. I think Halloween Three shares some similarities with some of those middle sequels, especially when it gets to adding the lore and the ancient mysticism to the series. <laughs> but it was never always intended for, it was, like the series wasn't always intended to be about michael myers john carpenter has said that when he conceived of halloween He wanted it to be an anthology series in which every sequel would be a different film with a completely different cast of characters and a completely new Halloween story. Like, it wouldn't actually be related to Michael Myers or, you know, the day he returns, Mm. the day he strikes. It would just be the setting, the time period for each of these Halloween spooky stories. And for one reason or another, he never got to do that with Halloween 2, it was uh, put on the back burner, and he and Deborah Hill actually were coerced into writing uh, Halloween 2. Se- we've seen Halloween 2 as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what, what do you think of Halloween 2? That's that's one I was always familiar with. Halloween 1 and 2 were always very familiar with myself growing up. I, I can't remember a time before they existed in my life.
1: I mean, Halloween 2, it's almost like they try and make it like it's one long movie, like Halloween 1 and 2, because it just follows on straight after yeah. In a way, I think the best comparison, and I think it's because it's around a similar time in terms of, like, sequels, and it does remind me an awful lot of uh, Jaws 2. Yes, very much so. In terms of its relationship to the original, I mean, it's like, it's everything's bigger and wackier, yeah. and all the deaths are more elaborate and... Um, yeah they do jump the shark a little bit with the uh brother reveal which i know that the uh the newer films have completely retconned yeah i think that sent the later sequels down a particular path mm-hmm. as well they didn't bother to retcon halloween 2 either and i think that may be to their detriment um which is um, why the the newer halloween um the 2018 halloween decided to just ditch it completely and just be a direct sequel to the very first Halloween.
0: but very much like jaws 2 for me i think it's one of the films that still feels a part of the original yeah even though it feels like an overblown and rather elaborated on version of that original yeah. like there's still just the tiniest thread of authenticity and continuity between them that the sequels beyond that don't have. Yeah, yeah. All the way up until about H2O. I think H2O has quite solid continuity with the first two Halloween films. It does go together quite well. Probably not stylistically,
1: weird. though. Oh, absolutely not. Stylistically, it's trying to be Scream, isn't it? So It's Scream, yeah. Stylistically, it
0: is far more like Scream. I will say, it's weird that they did reframe the new Halloween film as being... Like the true sequel to Halloween and a true story for Laurie Strode, you know, and and really getting to the bottom of her post-traumatic stress for dealing with Michael Myers. Mm. I always remember thinking, like H2O did that as well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's not a unique situation, and I will say, Halloween, the new one, isn't a rather unique film, but it works and it does stylistically feel more of a continuity with the first Halloween mm. film as well. Like they've made a conscious effort. To make that film feel in terms of the atmosphere, in terms of the look, like it belongs in that world. Yeah. Whereas Halloween H2O felt like it belonged to Scream, like you say. Yeah, I'd
1: say they're almost like a trilogy, like I would say the uh Halloween, uh the curse of Michael Myers, H2O and Resurrection, they kind of all feel like Miramax films from that time. Yes, they do. And they have that kind of nineties tacky sheen to them. Um, yeah,
0: but all the flashes and screams and like
1: sound design, nightmarish yeah. stuff that just gets in the way. Yeah, I mean, uh, Halloween three definitely shares its aesthetics with the first two, definitely. Oh. But uh, yeah, it's it's kind of something else entirely. And uh, really getting into
0: it is. Have you, have you done some reading up, by the way, about the making of how Yeah, Harry? I watched
1: that Shout Factory documentary as well. Yes, me
0: too. Yeah. Me too. I
1: just want to make sure that... That's on YouTube.
0: That's where yeah. I watched it as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, even though I spent a hundred and whatever pounds on that giant box set to be imported from America, <laughs> I still end up watching the special <laughs> yeah, features. Yeah, I think they're all on, on
1: YouTube. Like, all of YouTube, them. On yeah. YouTube, All the documentaries.
0: What a waste! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so looking at that, I mean, they they do say as well that Tommy Lee Wallace was contacted about making a Halloween film but one of the things that he was told up front was that John Carpenter and Deborah Hill they weren't interested in pursuing it as a Michael Myers project it wouldn't be a Michael
1: Myers starring Halloween film yeah because he turned down Halloween 2 already yeah primarily because of that he didn't like sequels Mm mm-hmm yeah I think he's quoted as calling them a disease and so yeah he passed on directing too even though he was their first choice although I think was it Joe Dante was briefly going to direct Halloween 3
0: yes I did read that as well that Joe Dante was definitely in the mix to direct yeah. Halloween 3 I wonder if it was something to do with not having Michael Myers or that type of thing mm. that said there is a Joe Dante-ish element to this film as well, like that. I feel like it may suit him just in terms of the reflection of corporate America being this homicidal warlock-ish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wants to kill all the children of America. It's got like a, these kind of views on capitalism in that way as well. The consumerism around this time of year that we'll buy any old tat. <laughs> that I think would fit in with Joe Dante's uh, vision. Yeah,
1: but yeah, and um, they got Tommy Lee Wallace to direct it yeah the the anthology idea they kind of wanted to do a uh, almost like a riff on like night gallery or twilight zone but on a much yeah. larger scale and you can definitely see that when you look at what the story of halloween 3 is mm-hmm. it does feel like an extended episode of of one of those In that it also feels about half an hour too long for what should have been about 50 minutes yeah or even half an hour <laughs> it would have been all right <laughs> Yeah, so and yeah, they had this anthology idea which I don't know what happened if they really wanted to pursue that and it, it seemed like a lot of people thought it was a, a stupid idea. I know um was it the executive producer Owen Yablans? Yeah. Was uh quoted as saying it was stupid. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he didn't st- want anything to do up. with it. <laughs> yeah, he's just there in name only.
0: He said he was just happy to sit back and receive a fat paycheck. Yeah.
1: And in a way I can see his point because I feel like I don't know who had the idea to market it as Halloween 3. But whatever the quality of the film that whole notion of marketing it as Halloween 3 was just unbelievably misguided and was dooming the film for failure whatever. That's it, yeah. By marketing it as Halloween 3, not even as like Halloween subtitle, by giving it an actual number like it's saying it's part yeah. of the series or to maslane your mind, oh it's it's a sequel to halloween 2 like direct sequel yeah
0: exactly in terms of advertising you're creating a continuity with your audience Mm. to say remember that thing that you saw expect more of it here yeah and this isn't the case with halloween 3 yeah and they do go into information about in in the documentary as well that they never really hammered down how to market this film they never marketed it as a new experience, a new Halloween experience. And when we actually look at the landscape of cinema as well during the 80s, and especially horror cinema, and this film was made, I believe, 1982? Yeah. You've got Jason Voorhees. You will say that the, the slasher landscape is dominated by slasher villains. One, I understand why they would try to do something completely different and kind of abandon Michael Myers, the thing that started it all in many ways. But... At the same time, I don't think at any point during this film
1: do they earn that Halloween name. I kind of feel they should have gone down the route. And it's strange that they didn't do this because it's not as if there weren't lots of horror anthology films being released at the time. Because we even mentioned them uh, in an earlier episode when we were talking about The Lawnmower Man. I don't understand why they just couldn't call it like Halloween Nights or Tales from Halloween or something like that, and give it exactly give it a, Halloween Tales. Yeah, give it a distinct. It, well, it,
0: it, automatically it conjures that scene from The Fog.
1: Yeah, of
0: yeah. kids gathered around a campfire. It's Are oh, you afraid of the dark? Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. But kids gathered around a, a campfire telling spooky stories. Yeah, and I, I think. This is definitely part of that. This could feel like, you know what, actually, this probably would make an absolutely fantastic Are You Afraid of the Dark episode.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it definitely feels like a prototype are you afraid of the dark or even if you know if you tone down loads it's a goosebumps episode isn't it really like it's a yeah you know without the gore
0: i feel like the goosebumps episode version of this would be just as brutal in terms of its ending as well be just as ambiguous yeah but it would just cut back on the gore but it would still definitely have a kid's head melting
1: although I, i would say like if they were gonna go down this idea and with the anthology series i probably wouldn't have started with this story you know what they should have started
0: with the fog yeah i've always thought that if that was the idea of them making this type of film then the fog feels like it should be the natural next step in that
1: in that evolution in that anthology series yeah definitely yeah they thought i think they thought it was a novel idea like making these halloween films and releasing one every year and it being, yeah, it, they they thought, you know, on paper, it could potentially be a, a marketer's dream. But I think because it mm-hmm. was so heavily tied to the previous entries, it was always going to fail and alienate the audience, I think.
0: Yeah, it's like um, wading out into a lake with cement shoes on. It's going to sink. <laughs> so um, one of the things I actually want to mention as well about the making of this film, and I did write in my notes while I was watching it, that it does have something of... A a mass feel I wrote to it, but I think it's mostly to do with the weird Stonehenge mysticism and stuff like that. But then also the introduction of the insects later on in the film. Yeah. I wrote down that it has a quite a mass feel to this film. I'd actually forgotten that Nigel Neal had anything to do with this film yeah. because he he doesn't even receive a credit, but you did write that I do believe in the documentary to mention that he wrote about seventy percent, sixty or seventy
1: percent of yeah. the final script. Yeah, and Tommy Lee Wallace goes on to say that like him being credited as the writer of the film is completely wrong. It's it's three writers. Yeah. It's Nigel Neal with rewrites by John Carpenter and then further rewrites by Tommy Lee Wallace. So it is very much Nigel Neal's story, but with extra added gore uh, at the yeah. behest of Dino De Laurentiis, our old friend Dino. Oh, right. we need, a more, gore. Dino. We need a more gore. We need more gore. Why you not do Hannibal? <laughs> I want June to be two hours. <laughs> it's like it's like he was in the room with us. Oh yeah,
0: I could smell him, his spirit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's weird to think that actually now you would never get away with this kind of situation as well in terms of the Writers Guild of America. It's weird that the person that probably did the least with the script, Tommy Lee Wallace, in terms of what he contributed he actually received sole credit whereas now the wga have such rules that you need to change something like 33 percent or yeah. more of a script in terms of its structure characters and style make an imprint in order to receive any kind of credit whatsoever yeah it's weird that that situation was a was allowed to happen essentially and i wonder if uh, nigel Neal had because i know that he wasn't happy now with the way that he was dealt with on this film as he has never really been happy with how he's been dealt with by hollywood no but i wonder if he had personally asked to have his
1: credit removed from the film yeah i think so because he doesn't even have a story by or anything like that so yeah it's got to be him just saying i don't want name on the film at all yeah yeah it's strange that they wouldn't even like make a pseudonym or something like that but the essential idea comes from deborah hill though it's the uh, the idea of witchcraft meets the computer age <laughs> <laughs> it's a very 80s In very premise, 80s. very much yeah <laughs>
0: yeah it's got a very strange feel to it when it comes to this type of thing as well because in terms of looking at the script, it feels like it's the Terminator and especially with its music as well and that's something I want to speak about but um, especially with its music and its kind of like electronic droning and I would say heartbeat of a robot sound and also in terms of what it presents, it's very the Terminator and then at the other side of things, you've got we keep saying it, Irish warlocks <laughs> but never do the two really feel like they meld no
1: no yeah it's a very similar crew to halloween two it's almost exactly the same yeah and uh, you get a lot of people returning like uh dean cundy dean Condy, yeah and like the costume designer and everything so uh-huh. it, it shares a lot of continuity with that film even though story-wise it doesn't but yeah i kind of felt that the casting is very strange yeah it doesn't really make much sense to me yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even
0: right down to having Nancy Keys in this film. Yeah, I understand that it's not connected to the Halloween films, but it is kind of connected to the Halloween films now. I remember even thinking as I was a kid, like, does it have any connection? Is this what, what's this supposed to mean? It's very strange. This is one of her last films as well. All actually, right. considering yeah. that she was, uh, she was very much part of John Carpenter's, like, because people always talk about Jamie Lee Curtis being John Carpenter's, like, diamond that he had found as well. Nancy Loomis was actually in several of his films as well, in very like similar and prominent roles. Mm. And uh, but her career just never really kicked off to that next notch like Jamie Lee Curtis did. She was just elevated beyond. And uh, yeah, so shortly after this, she actually she was only in a few bits and bobs up until the nineties and then just quit acting. Mm. I guess let's just get into the film, really. Let's have a look into the film. We can really um over the making of for some time, <laughs> yeah. but let's let's get into the film. So let's start with this casting as well. Yeah.
1: How how do you feel about these actors and these characters? Um so I think that the most appropriately cast actor, because it is quite a small cast, is um, Donagh Herlihy as the warlock Cochrane. E Cochrane, yeah, Cochring, as I keep on calling him <laughs> all the way through the film. <laughs> yeah, I would say, yeah, out of the central cast, he's probably the only one that really kind of works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always like him in films. Anyway, I even like him when he's like covered in makeup in the Last Starfighter yeah i didn't ever i didn't realize until very like much later on that he was that <laughs> character in last starfighter yeah same I here was like, what because it's not the kind of role that you would think would not. lend itself to an old guy being covered in makeup you, you know, that <laughs> seems more like a young man's game it does yeah but yeah it's strange but um and obviously robocop one and two yeah even though they're basically two completely different characters in either one of those films yeah, well that's but... it that's <laughs> it with those films he's definitely playing two separate characters yeah it's like he's playing like his brother as twins <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah or some sort of like alternate universe which might explain something <laughs> i'm very unsure about the other two main cast members yes, yes because yeah they just do not work together Either in their roles or as a duo.
0: <laughs> well, I, I like Tom Atkins. I think he's, and I mean, not in this film, but I like Tom <laughs> Atkins. I think he's a he's a fine actor, and he's become something of a. Um movie uh, legend for his yeah. roles in these films and much in the same way as like Bruce Campbell is yeah. perhaps not quite as much but Tom Atkins is one of those people that's always a friendly face within the horror genre yeah. within genre films and I've always liked him for that as well this film he feels completely out of place I don't know if he how much older he, he is to Stacey Nelkin who's in the film but he looks like he could be her granddad honestly I, I looked
1: it up yeah, he's 24 years older than her. Oh. So, yeah, it's a quite significant yeah. age gap. When he came on screen, I'm I'm going to I'm either going to call him not Tom Selleck or yep. Cradle Snatcher McGee. <laughs> <laughs> Cuz whoever was writing the screenplay had a certain person or kind of style of actor in mind when they were writing yeah. those parts and they cast basically the opposite on on for each one. <laughs> I mean I kind of feel like if they'd gone with someone like Tom Selleck it would be okay yeah because the character that they've written Dan Chalice they've written him as some sort of like lady killer yeah and yeah even though I like Tom Atkins and it's strange that they keep putting him in these roles because he has a similar role in The Fog uh, with Jamie Lee Curtis and I don't know why they keep doing it because he's just not right for it (laughs) He's right for many things, but that isn't one of them. I I, I think he's got quite the sexual appeal. Oh, man. I wrote this down like much later on when when the you start getting the sexy times, but I was like, seduction isn't necessary when Dan Chalice is around. <laughs> Honestly, like I nearly looked at the time code just to find out
0: from when he's introduced to her, and let's face it, he's introduced to her <laughs> while she's looking at the corpse yeah. of her dead father. And then, I think it's like about three minutes of film time later, they're sleeping together. Yeah, I was like, wow.
1: Bereavement was never so sexy as it is in Halloween 3.
0: Which part of the grief process was it on? Which stage of grief of bereavement was this?
1: Yeah, stage 25, hook up with old guy. (laughs) Yeah. Old dick. Yeah.
0: Talking about old Dick, one of the guys who's involved in this film, a stunt (laughs) stunt
1: coordinator is called Dick Warlock. Dick Warlock, yeah.
0: Dick Warlock, I've seen him in a few things as well, but what a name!
1: That's like a porn star name. It really is from the 70s as well. Like I am Dick Warlock. (laughs) Witness my wizardry,
0: my magical orbs. I will say as well, like this uh, Tom Atkins' role, uh, Doctor Chalice. Yeah, he's got the type of character that's a certain like type of trope for this genre and this type of character you see in so many different films what I will say is I saw a lifetime movie that Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig had made and it was played completely straight but in it Will Ferrell plays a an author who gets into an affair with someone? It turns into like a bunny boiler type lifetime movie. <laughs> but one of the lines that she says to him, like that, his wife Kristen Wiggs, says to him is, "I know what these book tours are like. You've got women throwing at you at every corner." And it's like that's a book tour for an author. <laughs> for an author, has women throwing at him, and it made me think about it with this with this guy Tom Atkins. It's like he's a doctor at this nothing town in the middle of nowhere. He's a drunk. He's a shit dad and it's like women are just like throwing
1: themselves at his feet yeah he's already got he's he's totally banging the two women at the hospital yeah. like he's definitely banging Angus uh, no Angus is definitely <laughs> <laughs> he's definitely banging he's definitely banging Agnes he's
0: banging Angus <laughs> oh yeah
1: the farm boy from <laughs> down the road oh that too yeah. <laughs> yeah that's when he's sober but um yeah yeah but yeah. he's definitely banging Agnes and he's totally banging Teddy yeah. He's balls deep in Teddy, but I don't know why. He's he's <laughs>
0: like he's like the Indiana Jones of the small town doctoring yeah. world. He's like an action GP. Yeah.
1: But that's where I was like, if it was Tom Selleck, it would be fine, because you could understand that. Because it's Tom Selleck, but with what you're trying to tell me is you have a thing for Tom Selleck. Well, I'm just it's thinking, like, like he just makes me weak at the knees. Well, no, I'm just thinking he made it work for Friends, so he did. Yeah, you know, maybe you know that wasn't something that he wanted to be typecast
0: for. Though. Yeah, like maybe. whenever they need somebody to to bang someone twenty years younger yeah. than bring me, bring in
1: Tom Selleck. Yep. I'm the guy. <laughs> To be honest, Tom Cruise is that guy now. Yeah. Actually, on the Shout Factory documentary, when they started talking in the, the cinema forum, when they started talking about it being a cult classic, the moderator did ask a very interesting question, which I hadn't thought about whilst watching the film, mm. because it feels like it's a common belief that Stacy Nelkin's character gets switched at some point when they're in the factory, yeah, and later on it is when she's the robot. But he asked the question, was she always the robot? And I was like, mm, yeah. that, that could explain quite a lot. <laughs> it could. I will say the moderator is Brian Collins
0: as well, who's um, one of the writers. He used to be for Birth, Movies, Death. Very good writer. He Used to do a uh, blog called Horror Movie A Day, mm. where for I think it was several years, he did a horror movie review every single day and watched a horror movie. So, yeah, he knows his stuff. And I'd never even thought about that element of the film. And I've seen this film several times. I even went to the cinema to see it myself at one of the screenings. And um, I've never really thought about that. Yeah. It would explain a lot of her actions throughout, especially in terms of, and and I don't know if this is something that the actor intended, but the acting when she sees her dead father, for example, she's like, yes, yes, that's him. It's all very stilted for a while. No no actual genuine emotional response.
1: Yeah, and, and... It would have been a great twist to for him to have found out that that old guy that died didn't actually have a daughter at all. Yes! And she's like a plant. But yeah, I, I think it, it kind of needs explaining because I'm, I'm very unsure about her performance in this film. Yeah, I am. I mean, she's not given the best lines ever, but... I don't think anybody's given the best lines. No, no one is. I mean, that's the thing I, I, I was thinking about. This screenplay is... Um, it's not very good, really, is it? Like, the screenplay... <laughs> It's, it's not the best. <laughs> There's a character that really
0: sums up the issues with the screenplay for me. And um, is her name Marge or something like that? She, or is it the, the woman that Ellie meets at the motel outside? She's coming to pick up the... Uh, oh, is it the Misfire Lady? Yeah, the Misfire yeah, Lady, yeah. Because, yeah. like, she stops outside. She's in it for, like, two scenes total. And in one scene, she practically gives her a social security number <laughs> she's she's like she gives so much information about herself almost every character is like exposition character it's yeah, like,
1: yeah it's, it's like hilarious. somebody
0: introducing themselves like shaking their hand hi my name's Gareth and I'm from Manchester my telephone number is blah 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 <laughs> and here's my security number and now we can begin talking yeah in a way considering that three people have had different goals at the script it feels
1: like very much like a first draft yeah and they've almost like put placeholders in like we'll explain this later and mm. then they haven't gone back to it yeah there's so many bits later on especially where it's like why are they staying at the motel why is there a curfew why did dan and ellie go out during the curfew
0: why is there a curfew
1: i don't know oh the other thing as well like yeah a good magician never explains, so we don't explain it yeah and it's like the Stone stonehenge you wouldn't believe how we did it like how we got that piece because they're not going to explain it they're sort of tiptoeing around all the floors in this plot to try and make you not notice that it's a yeah. heavily flawed plot. To be honest, it's like I want to see
0: the Ocean's Eleven film of a bunch of warlocks getting together. <laughs> like I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna form a group what's the target stonehenge stonehenge <laughs> the little people are stonehenge <laughs> the warlock version of oceans 11 where the target is stonehenge yeah fuck
1: the rest of this film that's the film i want to see yeah i think whenever we mention stonehenge we should just fade in the spinal tap stonehenge song like with <laughs> the little dance to the little people it's like it feels like that whole fuck me that bit that stonehenge bit is just the fucking goofiest thing yeah why is it there
0: why? Again, I think that's part of the, um it's obviously what Nigel Neal's brought yeah. to the table with this film, but it made me think like this needs to be set in England yeah. for a start. yeah, Because we do have this kind of like folk horror thing over here as well, related to things like Stonehenge and these kind of like old rituals and traditions. You look at the likes of The Wicker Man, for example, as well ours is a setting that's more conducive to these kind of stories. So why not tell that story over here? Because by taking it to America, it feels far more out of place that suddenly, out of nowhere, Stonehenge is introduced in this little suburban American town. It's like,
1: what the fuck, guys? The whole thing's very unfocused. There's lots of bits of ideas that aren't really fully developed. But yeah, if you're going to change the location, you just have to retool the whole thing because it's so centred around Halloween and the masks and and the kids and everything. Mm. Because in the UK, I mean, we do have Halloween, but it doesn't have the same kind of significance that it does in America. So I think you'd have to retool that part of the film Mm -hmm. to make it work because you do get the odd trick-or-treater, but it's not the same thing. As you get in America. I think
0: weirdly enough, Halloween over here reached its peak in the nineties. Yeah. For us, I think we were like at Halloween peak, and it's weird that over the years I've just seen it disappear as a holiday. Because I always loved Halloween growing up as well. But now it just seems like I mean, I know that it's different for me. My experience of Halloween is obviously different as an adult. But now all it seems to be is like a night for clubbing while dressed up. Yeah. As a slutty ghost.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I think it's because of its positioning in the in the calendar as well in the uk because it's just before bonfire night yeah i mean literally the day after you start getting the fireworks going off so it's uh Mm -hmm. it's kind of oddly positioned whereas in america there's a big long gap before you get to thanksgiving so yeah it's much more evenly spaced out in the holidays for that to work also it's always nicer weather in the states (laughs) i mean generally uh yeah it's, it's nicer to go out and And do stuff whereas in in the UK around that time in October that's when the nights are rolling in and it's starting to get chilly Uh so uh, no one's really in the mood I mean that's more more of a thing where Halloween I'll just watch a scary movie and that's about it yeah exactly
0: it's just a very strange film I I will say that for me though I'm, I'm gonna go really all out there and say that this is a film that I don't mind I actually find Halloween 3 quite watchable I've seen it several times over the years. I saw it when I was a kid and it made quite an impact on me because of one specific scene. I like where it ends and I like the idea of the whole crux of the thing being about killing kids essentially which me as a kid watching this I was always safe I felt safe watching these films because the kid never got killed and every time we came across a film like where the primary targets were kids kind of made an impact on me and I think because I have that connection to this film I've always been a lot more forgiving of it but watching it now as an adult there's just so much in terms of the writing of the film that I cannot forgive. Yeah. There's so much in terms of... I think you, you mentioned it because one of the main questions that I've wrote is just why are people doing what they're doing? <laughs> what is the overall goal? What are the character arcs? I think it's a film with a certain tone and feel that I really appreciate. Yeah. It's got an atmosphere yeah. to it that I really like. It looks good. It's got moments that are really impactful. But in terms of looking at it as a whole, I do not know what it's trying to say or what it's doing don't know what it's about essentially i feel like on some level it should be about this idea of um halloween turning into this kind of consumerist holiday where all we do is buy shit that any old um, warehouse will sell to us in terms of the masks and that type of thing and so obviously being used used against us for some nefarious reasons but i feel like that's been lost as well in this soupy film full of bonkers ideas
1: i feel the idea thought what they wanted to do was way too ambitious for the the type of film that they were making and the budget that it had because mm-hmm. because of the way they set everything up you just do not buy that this silver shamrock company is this huge organization that that <laughs> creates all these masks that go around the world yeah and i just don't think the idea of kids being infused by these masks uh, it doesn't really fly with me. It feels very, no, no, yeah. It feels like they've tried to force that idea. I it, mean, it my really... my
0: Halloween nights were like my mum cut holes in a bin bag, and I went as we made a cape out of a bin bag, and that was it, really. Yeah, that was my Halloween dress. So the idea of kids
1: coveting certain masks is just bonkers to me. There needed to be like an additional gimmick to those masks to make people. I mean, you probably did have gimmicks like, you know, like yo-yos and tamagotchis and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you oh, needed yeah. to have that kind of a, of a gimmick for, to the mask to make it yeah. uh, a phenomenon. And I don't feel like the designs of the mask that they had, the style of the advert that they made, and obviously even the look of the factory and the, the whole image that the Silver Shamrock company had in the film mm-hmm. uh, really worked to sell that part of the plot that premise yeah you just don't buy it and i kind of feel like the whole thing feels forced and and it kind of doesn't feel structurally sound because of it yeah you are more forced to just rely on the the atmosphere and the visuals to sort of carry you along because i think a lot of the other things Mm -hmm. aren't doing their job particularly well i mean i would say it's not a good movie in any way maybe apart from the visual aesthetic because it's dean cundy but and the music definitely for me yeah but it does it in such an inoffensive and and sort of slightly charming way. You don't mind that it's not very good, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think that's what I think that's where its cult status has sort of been yes. cemented. Where yeah, people go, yeah, it's got some good ideas. It's not. That well done, you know, execution-wise, but it's got a certain charm to it. This is truly a cult film. I mean, people yeah. talk
0: about cult films as being like Evil Dead or, for example, one of the more recent films that we do. Like, I've seen Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome referred to as a cult film and I don't think they're really cult films, so to speak. No. I think this is a cult yeah. film. These films that yeah. truly, um, 100%, completely failed, complete oddities, weird misfires that have grown in stature since... I truly believe that this, this film does embody everything that a cult film is. Like, as we've mentioned before, Howard the Duck as well, another complete misfire. Very ambitious, but completely misfiring on all, on all cylinders. Yeah, I think, as you mentioned, it's just the inoffensiveness of it and the fact that it dared for me. And in terms of its ambitions, that it dared for me to do something different yeah, during tried. this period <laughs> of time. Yeah, when all of these horror films were just the same film packaged up with a different villain with essentially just with a different silhouette as the villain yeah so i can understand why john carpenter looking at you know and deborah hill looking at this landscape of slasher films then and saying we can't just do another michael myers film
1: yeah and i can completely understand because yeah like they are restless creatives but I just think if they were going to do this story, then yeah, marketing-wise, they should have had a proper think about yeah. how they were going to do it. And I just would not have opened with this story because I think if you're classing it as a uh, a night gallery slash Twilight Zone segment, of which mm-hmm. really there is only about half an hour of story in this, it's very much like a yeah. a half-hour episode stretched out to 90 minutes. But even so, I would say as a segment, if you viewed it in context with other segments, it would be one of those stories where you would say, oh, maybe that, that was the weaker segment of the film, you know, of the, yeah. of the whole, <laughs> like, it's probably not the best story in, in the in the anthology. But then again, if they had done it as a segment,
0: it would have been the one where the kid's head turns into insects. Yeah, yeah. So it would always have that going for it for me. You know, you know, because that is like the centerpiece of this film. And I will say I've mentioned that it has the scene, the scene that made a massive impact on me when and when I was a kid. That was the scene that scared the bejesus out of me. Yeah. That felt like a true Halloween horror to me, to be able to see that as like Oh God! I must have only been about eleven or twelve when I first saw this late at night, and it was watching this kid who was not much younger than myself. His head just disintegrate into insects and snakes and what you know, creepy crawlies. Man, that that ruined me. I was like, this is truly <laughs> horrifying. And even now, watching it, I still get the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. And for me, it's worth it just for that moment. I think it's one of, one of these films, Halloween three. It's not it's not good. It's not a good film. I would never say it's a good film but it's one of those ones where a kid might discover it much like I did at one, you know, midnight, one night. You know, you don't really get this anymore, but you used to be able to stay up and just have your TV on and you would be really at the mercy of whatever was on the four or five channels that you watched or yeah. <laughs> you could get. And like Channel 4 used to do horror nights all the way through October. Yeah. And I used to stay up every night and watch whatever film was on. And that's why that, that's how I got into like, a lot of the weird cult films that I like now is just simply because they were on at like midnight and one o'clock in the morning when I should have been asleep and I was up at night watching them and this was one of those films and I think I discovered it the best way anybody should discover these type of films but it's just a shame you don't really get that anymore.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a proper midnight movie, isn't it? Yeah, and I was going back to that Twilight Zone idea because they're definitely going into that direction but I think the beauty of the original Twilight Zone is that they are all proper short story ideas which... Yes if you tried to stretch them out, they probably wouldn't hold water, but they work in the time that they are told in. Definitely. I think that's a problem with the modern Twilight Zone, the the most recent one, where some of the stories have just... Well, I think it's a big flaw that it's not in black and white anyway, because I think all, all the Twilight Zone revivals have suffered from that. But also the fact that, yeah, I just think because they're trying to match modern storytelling and and blend in with the you know with the crowd the stories are all way like stretched like way too thin yeah yeah they just need to sort of do their job and get in and get out uh, whereas Mm they kind of go off on one and it's the same thing with Halloween 3 really whereas it really is a half hour story and they've stretched it out so I think that's where you get these odd little tangents of why does this character go out at night and do this and talk to this character and there's a lot of loitering (laughs) in this film like loitering around and it's a bit of a runaround at times there was always a film that i thought when i was growing up that had
0: a similar feel as what you've just mentioned like a twilight zone feel and i actually discovered much later that it was actually linked to a certain tv show at the time that was actually shocked to find out but of film series final destination and i actually found out that that originally was conceived as being a x-files script and actually got quite far along and it was going to be a Mulder and Scully thing. And you can still, You can read the script online, and a lot of it is in that script as well. And it feels like it, it does feel a part of that. And yeah, I can see Halloween 3, the story. Actually, if you retooled it, you stripped back some elements, you took out the robots, for example. That's something you could lose straight away for me because I don't understand the robots' place within this
1: series. Yeah, they don't seem to connect with the warlock too well. You've almost got like two strands and they've not really merged them together. You've got the toy factory that makes mm-hmm. robots and then you've got the warlock. And they just sort mm-hmm. of go, right, we've got the warlock plot and the toy factory plot. Oh, we'll just make the warlock own the toy factory. And it's like they're sort of buffeting against each other. And you kind of just need to go with one or the other. Yes. Because I feel like this this is what's happened. It's almost like it's a half hour idea, but they've tried to elaborate it to stretch it out to 90 minutes But they've made it more complicated, but but they've not developed it. And I think that's why, yeah, it feels kind of quite convoluted in a way that, say, for example, Halloween is not convoluted whatsoever. It's incredibly simple. It's a really simple idea. And they've been able to stretch that out because of its simplicity, I think. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is kind of almost the opposite effect, where they've tried to add bits onto this simple story that's made it not quite gel. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's about five drafts away from the final (laughs) product.
0: I like how the more we talk about it the more drafts that this film needs. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it is like there's there's no merging between those two. Like you say I know that this is supposed to be witchcraft meets uh, the technical age, the uh, the age of the digital world. And even the way in which these masks operate is just a throwaway inconsequential technical element which are these poorly fixed on tags That, to be honest, when any kid gets one of those masks, the first thing that they're doing is pulling that tag (laughs) off. (laughs) And they've got some sort of microchip in it, which is the thing that turns their head into insects. Yeah. And why aren't the masks themselves just mystical? Yeah. Why don't each of them just go through some sort of ritual, some sort of ancient ritual where the outcome is this? Yeah. It doesn't feel like it has any consequences because of... The text off. It just feels like it's just added on, just thrown on. Yeah,
1: and because you've got that whole idea of the the piece of Stonehenge being in every one of those tags, it's like, what's the connection with the mask? It's like you may as well have just like had a story revolving around pogs or something like that yeah (laughs) you know like you could have just made it about the discs again that's like two ideas trying to they're trying to buff it to them together and they're not quite working together the whole plan is flawed anyway because you you've got this idea that all the kids have to be around the tv at nine o'clock at night and it's like i don't get that why that's a good plan (laughs) i mean not that i want to kill loads of kids but like it's yeah so what you're saying (laughs) is.
0: If I was trying to kill yeah. all of the world's kids, yeah, this is how I would start. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but it's so convoluted as well. It's like why, why, they, why do they need the advert? And it's like why is that on at nine o'clock? Like most of the kids are going to be in bed. I mean, like, yeah, why not have it like seven o'clock or eight o'clock? It's like nine o'clock, <laughs> and I just don't get the whole TV thing. It's just I don't buy it. <laughs> like it just, no. just doesn't make much sense to me because like if you're doing it around Halloween the, if they're going to be out they're going to be out trick-or-treating it's like yeah exactly ah uh, uh, fuck
0: um, I will say though that that advert has got one of the most catchy Halloween themes ever as they mentioned I'd ne- i would never noticed it before it's l- just London, London Bridge is Bridges falling, falling down. down
1: Yeah. <laughs> so it's in the public domain yeah
0: <laughs> every time I see this film it's stuck in my head I found myself I, as you heard moments before singing it to my son while we were feeling him a smashed avocado <laughs> so um he'll never afford that mortgage oh dear i know poor fella <laughs> but yeah so it's just it gets stuck in your head and i just find myself even to test my microphone before i was like happy happy halloween 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 silver shamrock With that, that
1: head bobbing up and down <laughs> <laughs> yeah this story is so stupid like oh god Yeah, but the gore is fine. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got everything in this as well. You've got, like, a bit of Driller Killer in there and you've got... I I think my favourite death is that misfire one, though, because it's just so bizarre. (laughs) It is. And it's like, that's all...
0: Like, she gets all that introduction. (laughs) Where her lips have just
1: exploded. Yeah. Yeah, it's like some plastic surgery going wrong, isn't it? It's like someone's had lip yeah. filler and their lips have exploded, isn't it?
0: There used to be a headline in a newspaper. We used to have it cut out on the fridge. And it was this woman with this you know, incredibly mangled face. And the headline was, I've had five face ops and I look great. <laughs> and it, she very much looked the same. But yes, that death is uh, its a killer. You can see why she gets the introduction that she does, where she essentially lays out an entire life story. And then one scene later, her, her mouth gets turned inside out. And, you know, the last thing that she got to hear was the sweet, sultry sounds of a man, 30 years older than a
1: woman slash robot, pounding in the next room. Yeah, I just I just find it funny, like, there's that, that moment just before, because Stacey Nelkin can hear something's going wrong. It's like, shouldn't we start? I was like, who cares? And he just goes, who cares? I'm pounding you now. <laughs> <laughs> pork him porking away please i the pill will only last for five more minutes <laughs> <laughs> oh man that character man it's just <sighs> yeah yeah my favorite moment is is towards the end when he's doing anger acting and he raises his fists i i love the the fight scene the robot fight at the end that keeps on going on and
0: on where he, he's in the car with Stacey Nelkin and it's oh, revealed yeah. that she is a robot and then they have a fight and the head gets knocked off. And
1: Oh, it's the arm, then the head, it's, then it's the it's other arm. It's the arm and then the
0: head, and then it's the, <laughs> arm, and then it's the <laughs> arm and then it's the body again. Yeah, And it's like they
1: milked that for everything <laughs> they can. It's like they couldn't decide which which uh, jump scare they wanted, so they decided to use all of them, <laughs> all of them. <laughs> and also, we need to fill the film up by another five minutes. So, like, yeah, we need to just fill that out.
0: I, I know that you've seen the documentary as well, and Tom Atkins says a goes through a brilliant, like, semi-racist rant that I absolutely love, <laughs> where he's talking about his time at Island. Because this film oh, does yeah. have like an Irish warlock. He goes, oh, Yeah, and, and, and you know, I I've, I've spent some time in Ireland. I went there on holiday sometime, and everybody's, they're really lovely. They're greeting me very nice, you know, as people are over there. But you just know under the surface there's something else. There's something wrong with those people. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they just want to take you what? out. <laughs> It's like you say just, they just they just want to take you out, do you? It's like, what the fuck are you talking about, mate? <laughs> oh, it's, it's so American, isn't it? Really? <laughs> it is, yeah. Then again, the only places in America I've been are like Disney and Vegas, which are like the two polar opposites from each other. So you get like the nicest place in the world where everybody's happy all the time at Disney and then you got Las Vegas where people are crying in the street.
1: (laughs) Do you want to talk about the music? Yeah, yeah, because I think we should talk about the music because, yeah, it is. I would say it's one of the aspects of the film, other than the cinematography, which does actually work in its entirety.
0: Yeah, I I would agree. When we actually come to look at the music, uh, I will say that I love the title sequence to this film as well. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a nice title
1: sequence. I like the little
0: beeping of the lines as they... That they're removed and that you know each one makes a different sound it all like adds together you've got this like drone going on in the background this ambient I could easily have that on in the background while I just write and go about my day it's it's a lovely bit of music but the soundtrack in general is fantastic for me this is actually probably well I was gonna say my favorite Halloween score it's probably not the most iconic Halloween score but it's probably the one that I've listened to most because I have had, had it on a few times as well, independent of the film.
1: I mean, it's probably one of my favourite John Carpenter scores overall. Yeah. I think it fits the visuals very well. Whereas I feel like some other John Carpenter scores, sometimes it's a mixed thing where I feel like some of the scores are mixed too high. In the Mouth of Madness, I would say, is one yeah. where the score does not meet the film whatsoever. Yeah. And I,
0: I love John Carpenter films. And I can listen to that score outside of the film, but... It all jars together for me. I, I think, in the mouth of badness, it's just short of greatness because of the score.
1: Yeah, I think They Live is another one for me where I feel like it's a little bit too repetitive at times. Yeah. And it's very high in the mix so mm-hmm. it kind of sort of doesn't quite blend well and it's it's that lolloping theme that just yeah. keeps going on and on and on and on. I was like oh they could have come up with something else in some of those scenes but uh, yeah
0: I think they live as a movie in which they ran out of money while they were yeah. making it as well yeah. I felt like thing. they like just like had the a po- bit of tape and they were just looping <laughs> it
1: across the film <laughs> it's like that Birdemic when it keeps like looping it <laughs>
0: It is it's strange as well, though. Look, like approaching John Carpenter and his music, that he's always described his music as being like, you know, the carpet in a house. You don't really notice it while you're in there, but it, if it's good, it adds to the room, but you're not supposed to notice it. Yeah. I understand where he's coming from, but at the same time, he's made some of the most iconic and memorable themes based off that mission statement of his, and to the point now in which he doesn't really make films anymore, but he does tour the world with his son and his ba- and his son's band, performing his John Carpenter themes to audiences. Yeah, yeah. And I-, I went to go see him, and I will say, even though the venue was atrocious, the show that he put on was outstanding. Yeah, yeah. He really did put on an absolutely fantastic show, and uh, it all came together brilliantly. But it just made me realize, like, for somebody that really stood against the idea that music should be noticeable, he's made some of the most noticeable and recognizable and memorable themes...
1: I can think of in the genre. Yeah, and in a way, he's kind of set the template for a lot of modern film music because I feel like a lot of more modern film scores rely less on their themes and more of a feeling. Yeah, like underlying feeling. I mean, you only have to look at like the sort of stuff that Hans Zimmer's been doing in the last sort of mm-hmm. 10, 15 textural. years. Yeah, textural stuff, uh, rhythmic based stuff. Yeah, that yeah they kind of well didn't pioneer because I think like. Like people like Jerry Goldsmith were doing sort of textual definitely, scores yeah. beforehand, but yeah. in the electronic medium, definitely we're doing that. And there's yeah. there's some stuff in the Halloween three score that feel like th- this kind of stuff keeps coming up, even in like EDM and stuff. Like, yeah. I think it's an often sampled score that people try and emulate and and take bits from anyway.
0: Because I've heard ambient work from known composers that feels very similar as well. That has very similar feelings to like the main theme, for example. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got bands like Zombie that yeah. have like, essentially made
1: their name off John Carpenter-like music. And they're fantastic. Yeah, I think I even I've unconsciously done things like that in the past especially in the electronic stuff. But yeah, it's interesting Like hearing Alan Howarth talk about it as, a, as an electronic colouring book. And it's the idea that they start the movie and just start playing and they had everything set up. So they would have done the score very, very quickly in a matter of days, literally did it almost live to pitch. That's actually fantastic. You know, a very sort of low tech way of, you know, scoring a film.
0: I guess that's right. It also has that as I mentioned, that Terminator feel to it as well, Mm. which actually does feel very John Carpenter-ish at times. I would say that that actually merges the slasher genre with this tech noir, this new digital feel. In a way, it's trying to do some things that Halloween 3 is doing. But uh, yeah, the Terminator feels like it takes it that step beyond. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I say step beyond. It's like uh, the Springfield
1: Gorge leap beyond. (laughs) Yeah. Something that I wanted to ask you, do you know what's happening at the end? Well, I mean, during the climax, anyway, with the whole Stonehenge thing, because I had no idea what was going on at that point. Do you mean in the facility? In the the, facility, uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what happens there. I know what happens with the TV and what's going on there, but I don't
0: know what happens with, like, when Stonehenge lights up and his head lights up and then he disappears, which is a really shit death for somebody that really needed something truly horrible to happen to him. Considering moments ago he turned a kid's head into insects, He needed something awful to happen to him to justify that. Yeah, And all he does is he kind of smiles and disappears in a bright white light. But I don't know what's going on or what started that off. I think Tom
1: Atkins, he just runs over to a machine, presses a bunch of buttons and then legs it and that's it. Yeah, I mean, and also in, in all these kind of tech films, they always seem to press the right buttons. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's what i mean it's like he's got a panel that's full of buttons that he's never seen before and he presses a bunch of them at random legs it and then everything explodes and even like obviously the the whole stacy nelkin thing as well like with the discs and them sort of short why does she help him no but it's why does she one why does she help him I love them creeping about with that um, ingenious hiding plan behind a moving rack of masks <laughs> in the facility. It's just like, why well, do you think that was a good idea? But the whole idea of the discs misfiring and killing all the robots, and it even mm-hmm. kills the robots on the stairs. Why didn't it kill the um, her? Her? Yeah. I mean, there's many questions like that where they definitely just paced over the logic. Because obviously, at this point, they're like, oh, the audience doesn't know the twist yet, so we'll, we'll, it doesn't matter, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> they're only going to watch this once. <laughs> 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 you know, things like... <laughs> you yeah. know.
0: It's got that feel to it, yeah. hasn't it? It's like, one and done.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, but that whole yeah that whole thing with the stone thing i'm just like what why <laughs> that's my issue with this film in
0: general i think on a script level is i just it just leaves me with lots of questions like not just questions like you know mysterious questions that i want to have that lead me to watch the film more and try to gain more knowledge but like logical questions about why characters are doing certain things or why key things in the film actually happen the way that they do i don't even understand what like what is why We'll go into this as well. I picked a certain review for the stats and facts period of the show because it reflected something that I had wrote in my notes I wanted to mention. But what is the end game of this whole plan? What is the outcome? I understand that there's some power to be had by killing the children of the world because, you know, the, the God requires sacrifice yeah. or that type of thing. But why is this necessary? What are you gaining out of this? What is the return for doing this thing? <laughs> Does it need explaining? <laughs> <laughs> it's like every scene in this film in which the audience deserve an explanation. It's that Jurassic Park three T Rex piss scene yeah.
1: over and over again. You don't want to know how I got this. Having said that, I do think that the last minute of the film is probably the most effective moment. It's a brilliant way to end the film. I, I just I think that the thing that that sells it for me. I, I love the idea that it's it's playing on all the channels and it gets it gets interrupted on the two on the previous two channels but the kid mindlessly switches the channel without question. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of that scene is that the kid is mindlessly switching the channel. Even though there's an adult at the back just absolutely freaking out, the kid is just mindlessly switching the channels. And I think that's the film's most effective moment because of that. Yeah, It encapsulates, I think, what the film was going for. What it was trying to say. I think it kind of failed it every other point but it succeeded in that in that last minute yeah um, in terms of what it was trying to say about commercialism and consumerism and things like that and the world that we live in now and it was a very twilight zoney ending as well with yeah the, with the sort of freeze frame of like stop it no kind of yeah thing. which and has become a meme of itself i
0: know that yeah. that GIF is a uh, it's been found in many places but i think it's because the film ends as well with that real high note that I, again, I forgive a lot more about it because there's a famous thing that I read about films, whereas if the last 10% of your film is good, people tend to react more positively towards that film. If the first, like, 90 percent is bad but then it ends really strongly you're still more likely to have a positive reaction towards that film whenever filling out any like forms or that type of thing you know like polling things yeah but if it's the opposite opposite way around where the bulk of it's good but you disagree with something in the end you're more likely to give it a negative score overall Mm -hmm. and i feel like halloween 3 for me hits that mark it's not a good film but because it ends so strongly and because it has these moments throughout i can't forgive its flaws i can't overlook its flaws but I I always have a stronger reaction to it because of how well it ends and that impact that it leaves me with. Yeah. And so I would never call it a good film. I would never stretch (laughs) to call it a good film in any way, shape or form. But I think for like, it's a disposable Halloween film. And I don't mean like Halloween series film. I mean like a a Halloween time of the year type film. If you're looking for a spooky horror film in the month of Halloween to, to build you up to that, yeah, you could do far worse. You could certainly do far worse in the genre. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's not the best. It's not going to blow your socks off, but it will certainly leave a mark in terms of a couple of key moments throughout. Okay, so now that we've discussed Halloween 3, I think it's time for us to move over to the stats and facts and look at how this film was received when it was released. To begin with, just to set the scene as well, I want to say that this film was made with a budget of $2.5 million, which was about the same as Halloween 2 as well. However, unlike those films, it was rather dismally received. One of the things that they do say in a documentary is that audiences went to see this film not knowing that it wouldn't have Michael Myers because the marketing for this film had been so poor. They had never really established that this was a Halloween film without Michael Myers. And to be honest, the title does that. I do agree with um, one of the talking headsets that if this film hadn't been called Halloween, or as you mentioned, Andy, if it had been reframed as being like a Halloween tale, Season of the Witch, I think it may have been received better by audiences i don't think it would ever have been the best received film but it certainly may have had more playing power as a result of that but yeah so the box office overall it made six million dollars for its opening and 14 million dollars total in the u.s that's all the information that i have on it they don't have any worldwide figures But that they continued the series and went immediately back to Michael Myers tells you really how poorly received this particular film was, that they abandoned the anthology idea pretty much immediately.
1: I mean, it's interesting to say that based on those figures, it didn't. Lose any money, no, but when you compare it to the original Halloween, which was made for about 300,000 or something and made like 70 odd million, yeah, it's a, a very much a law of diminishing returns. And uh, you mentioned that obviously they went straight back to doing Michael Myers. I mean, it was still another six years before yeah. they went back to uh reigniting the series with Halloween 4. and The, the rights had to
0: refer to Mustafa, Mustafa Akkad. Akkad, yeah. But yeah, so it it did take some time for them to build back up to that and they did find some... I, I don't think it truly found its feet in the sense that it had begun how the series had begun, but I do believe that they had more success
1: with the return of Michael Myers yeah I think by then there had been so many slasher films that it was kind of a follower than a leader at that point yeah yeah, they'd lost so much ground in the interim and yeah I think because of the reputation that this film had it had I think it pissed in the soup a little bit for general audiences
0: I think this film is the last one of the series that has up until the latest one though that has that kind of authenticity in terms of the look and sound of the film because there's a noticeable difference in terms of the, the look and sound and feel and atmosphere of the sequels that followed all the way up until the most recent halloween
1: film that was released i would say i think it was probably halloween h2o which was the the first film that kind of had a bit more pomp and circumstance around it i remember when it came out compared to the other sequels yes i I, yeah i remember it being quite a big thing at the time yeah yeah so you're talking about that kind of trajectory really
0: But yeah, I will say in terms of the opening weekend, to give you an idea of the types of films that Halloween 3 faced, number one was First Blood, and Halloween opened at number two. And number three was a film called Monsignor, never heard of it. Number four was An Officer and a Gentleman. Mm -hmm. Number five was E.T. the Extraterrestrial, the film that has always been attributed as killing John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, Nobody wanted to see any scary alien movies because they, uh, they had the lovable one. (laughs) To <laughs> on. number six was a film called my favorite year number seven was a film called jinx number eight was pink floyd the wall number nine the sender and number 10 a little uh, throwback to the previous episode was jekyll and hyde together again <laughs> unfortunately not played by russell Crowe.
1: knees, up, knees <laughs> up you mag
0: so moving on to the critical reception for this film it has the rotten tomatoes score of 42 percent with a 4.9 rating out of 10 Um, I will say that there aren't enough reviews in order for it to have a critical consensus, which um, really says how underwatched this film is as well. Nobody really, it's not just that people didn't like it when it was released, it's just that now because it's such an oddity, nobody really even goes back to it. It's truly a cult film. But I did pick the critic review from Roger Ebert once more because I felt like this represented something that I felt when I was watching the film this time around like the questions that it left me with. And he says, There are a lot of problems with Halloween 3, but the most basic one is that I could never figure out what the villain wanted to accomplish if he got his way. His scheme is easy enough to figure. He wants to sell millions of Halloween masks to the nation's kiddies and then brainwash them to put them on at the same time, whereupon laser beams at the base of the neck will fry the tykes. Meanwhile, he runs a factory that turns out lifelike robots. What is his plan? Kill the kids and replace them with robots. Why? and that was it that's his that's yeah. his like opening statement for that review and he gave yeah. it 1.5 out of four <laughs> but why is the main question that i would ask throughout the entirety of this film yeah
1: i think it ended up on his most hated list for that year i think uh halloween oh 3. really
0: i didn't i didn't read that <laughs> yeah oh well there yeah, we he go he didn't
1: react favorably to this film
0: and the audience score for this film is... And I'm, I'm actually quite shocked with how low the audience score for this film is. It's got 27% with a 2.37 out of 5 average rating. And the IMDb score is 4.9 out of 10. Now, I've not actually looked at the IMDb page for some time, and I thought that this film was more like, I don't know, 5.7 or something mm. like that. I was actually quite shocked to find out it's a 4.9 film. I mean, that's getting towards, like, bottom territory. yeah. I guess uh, I guess people really didn't like this film when it was released. Nope. <laughs> so I would say that the stats and facts do kind of reflect how I feel towards the film, even if I feel more favorably towards it, even if I have a, uh, like I, w- I would say, a more favorable opinion of this film. I will say it's mostly because of when and how I watched this film and what I related to, the nostalgia I feel, and also the, the impact that its key moments have. But I-, I kind of agree that it's not a good film, and these
1: stats and facts do reflect that. Mm. oh i did have a thought actually as well just about the whole feeling of the film and i think it's it kind of culminated in the stonehenge set i think with all mm-hmm. the people in the lab coats, it did remind me a little bit of another film that we've talked about on this podcast before, uh, Future World. Oh, yeah, that's a good shout. Where you have a lot of robot people in in white lab coats surrounded by apparatus with lots of shiny buttons and flashing lights and things like that. Oh, so
0: yes. it reminded me a bit of that. It has, and it's got a very similar ending with them being like pursued by, like you say, robots and lab coats and that type of thing yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, well, that ends with them being pursued by themselves as well. But yeah, it does have that feel of mm. like future world
1: and, and it not made that
0: connection. Mm. That's another another shout back to a previous episode.
1: Yeah, and I think that's it. Like in a way, it's like is is this like a relic of a previous era? Because it is a little bit Terminator-ish, but it, it does feel a bit more like Westworldy, especially with mm. I think even the bit where they take that woman away, that the misfire woman when they have the the lab coated people take away in the van, that's very westworld future world as well yeah and then yeah when you start getting uh, you know just a few years later films like the terminator that really update that whole premise yeah the premise of like robots and the future and things yeah it maybe is a little bit dated in a way yeah yeah i mean i think that's the thing with this film yeah it has a, it does have a nice sort of cozy and i think maybe a, a part of its cult status is that nostalgia card? I think very much so. Mm-hmm. Like it definitely is a little time capsule to how films were made at that point, especially yeah. how horror films were made at that point.
0: I mean, is this a film that you would recommend overall, Andy?
1: If you had to say yes or no, I would recommend it if you were planning on doing some sort of Halloween film marathon because I think it would it's very interesting viewing the film in context in the series itself and seeing where they went and how it was just a bit of a blind alley and yeah i mean if you're a fan of you know 80s horror films anyway i mean it's definitely a uh, choice film to to have i was just thinking before like yeah i think these these halloween films are very influential to the b movies i'm just thinking about halloween 2 about Mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure they had that um jacuzzi scene in halloween 2 and i'm pretty sure they did yeah every b movie horror had a jacuzzi scene in it for like (laughs) five years afterwards or something so like death spa is the main one that comes to mind but um yeah so it's definitely like if you are a fan of that type of horror film and obviously it's definitely gonna you're gonna get something out of it but uh, i think as a general audience member because i I did watch this with my wife yesterday and and she did not know what to make of it and she found it incredibly disappointing when comparing it to halloween yeah i think that just tells you all you need to know so yeah if you are a general audience member who's not particularly interested in horror or horror films from the 80s then no but if you are then yeah it's a bit of a curate's egg but I you know I'd recommend it for that for all the weird Mm -hmm. things that it does
0: yeah I would say that you have to go into this film with a certain expectation of what this film is going to be I think you have to know really some of the history and what to expect and with that you might get something from it it's definitely like you say curate's egg it's something worth watching even if it's just to gain some context on the franchise that it's attached to But yes, there are a few moments that will leave their mark, but it's another one that you can tick off your your horror film list, essentially. Okay, so that's everything that we have to say about Halloween 3. And if you join us next week, we'll be drawing guns with Quantum of Solace. And this is actually going to be the final film in this current series of Popcorn Digest. We'll be taking a short break after this one. So do make sure you come back to join us for this 007 adventure. It's something I'm very much looking forward to discussing. Hopefully, it will coincide with yeah. the release of No Time to Die, but who knows?
1: At the time of recording, no, no sod knows. So we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> but until then, I've been Gareth, and I've been Cradle Snatcher McGee, and we hope you have a happy Halloween. Ooh,
0: happy, happy Halloween!
1: Halloween! Halloween! Salve Shamrock. <laughs>